dreaming It's remains when we need to talk bad about my boss Take a break from work today is no total loss Alright, welcome, welcome, welcome to this opening day of baseball edition of the South Dakota Podcast and Blast. I am Chris Hull, communication specialist for Game Fish and Parks of South Dakota. Today is opening day of baseball, and while hope springs eternal, and it's supposed to be spring, it doesn't really feel like it in most parts of South Dakota, and uh, we're just dealing with it the best we can. Um, Got a cool episode for you today. Uh, Last year, we went and talk to every kind of regional fisheries manager uh, across the states and kind of ask them the same set of questions and and had a lot of positive feedback and a lot of people saying, that's really cool, you should do that again. So got a chance, uh, while they were pretty much all together at a fisheries meeting in Chamberlain last week, um, to kind of sit them all down. And it was going to start out asking, you know, set up as... Uh, you know, we we're going to ask these kind of standard questions and have them all give the answers while they were all sitting together. But it turned into more of a kind of a different kind of roundtable sort of discussion and went a different way than I thought. So I think they even requested they'd like to do those, you know, episodes like we did last year. But this ended up being pretty cool. We talked about a lot of stuff. We talked about trout stocking and fish stocking and and just it went in a bunch of different directions and it was it was really cool so i hope you like it and uh look forward to more fishing content coming as uh spring is here or at least they tell us sit back and enjoy discussion of the Game Fish and Parks Podcast and Blast. I'm Chris Holler, communications guy. Um, I don't know if there's ever been, this is unprecedented, boys, handsome, smart, (laughs) well-spoken, well-dressed group of uh, fisheries brains. Um, Notice we're we, doing this on radio. Right. <laughs> the, that I've ever assembled. Last year we did a kind of a separate roundtable of all the people that are in this room, ex- with the exception of our new brethren from the West River, but we'll get to him later. And we talked about the outlooks and uh, how everything's coming with fishing about this time of year. And it, they were um, they were a slam dunk. Everybody wants to hear from our smart handsome fisheries guys brains so i decided with with the uh exception of our our brother dave lucchese who had to leave because it might snow i don't know it (laughs) might snow that uh we're gonna get to him later we'll talk to him but uh i assembled some of our greatest fisheries minds because they're all together here for a fisheries meeting in chamberlain so let's go around the board and just Give a quick introduction uh, right here from Chamberlain. Hi, I'm Jason Sorensen. I'm fisheries biologist here in Chamberlain. Did I did I stick you with this last year, or did you make long uh, golden? Well, 
Yeah, you were right, there. Yeah, right. We yeah. Well, you've kind of tag teamed. So go ahead, Mark. So I'm Mark Ermer from Northeastern South Dakota. I'm the Area Fisheries Supervisor um, in Webster. And I'm Dylan Gravenhoff, Fisheries Biologist out of the Fort Pierre office. And I'm Jeremy Kentz, uh, Area Fisheries Supervisor in Rapid City. New guy. Mm-hmm. New guy. The new guy. We, I, I won't beat you up too much. So. Uh, we can take it. Right. <laughs> But uh, yeah, so last year we went around and, and kind of picked you guys off as, as we came along and, and people loved them. I mean, I don't, I, I get a lot of email comments about this kind of stuff, but very few like face-to-face -face comments. And there was a lot of them like, we want to do this again. You, you need to do this again. And there was a lot of people from a long ways away <laughs> talking to me about, you know, geez, thanks a lot, you know, kind of we're deciding where we want to go and we're talking and we're listening to this stuff. So figured we, it's probably time to do it again. Um, Anything we can do to bring your ratings up. Right. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> My ratings from zero to zero, right? As long as there's two people out there. Right. right? Yes. And, and you know, if, if uh, some of our listeners, if there's two people out there, they're mad at me because it's my fault that there was two people out there on some secret lake or secret sloop. So, but let's talk about, let's start, boys, with just a general overview and outlook. You know, I mean, everybody, when, when, when I go around and, I, you know, I'm at Pheasant Fest or I'm at these places, they're talking about winter being tough on critters, winter being tough on deer, winter being tough on pheasants. Winter's tough on fish, too. Um, Jason, maybe not for you so much, but let's talk about where we were at going into this winter and then kind of the conditions and stuff in this lower end of the Missouri River and the stuff that you kind of beat up on when you're working. Okay, yeah. So, you know, when it comes to the reservoir system, it's not so much the winter that's hard on the fish because we have that flowing water and it keeps, keeps the water oxygenated. What's hard on it is drought conditions. And as we all know, last summer we were in a pretty dry period supposedly is going to persist through this this summer but we'll see you know we have a lot of snow this winter but uh yeah i mean it uh can hurt fish production in the reservoir systems what about the areas outside of the river on the edges and, and frosty will talk to you about that too but how are those those prairie pot or not the prairie pothole but those missouri river kind of drainage potholes they were pretty low too right yep yep those small impoundments a lot of them had low water levels going into the winter um and we've seen a lot of some heavy ice cover for a long time now this winter and we've seen a lot of snow cover on top of that ice so um we won't know the full effects of that until until this spring when we go in there with some nets and look and see yeah. but uh surely uh it could be, could be bad news for a lot of those water bodies. Sure, and let's uh, just continue with that discussion, Irma. I mean, anybody who's ever been to Northeast South Dakota, I mean, I just went through there, and uh, yeah, I, I remember why I left. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you, winter. Yeah, <laughs> you guys have had winter, and, but I would say that in general, you probably didn't, you haven't seen the drought conditions either, right? right? So, I mean, that whole discussion about winter kill is kind of interesting because, of course, down in the Sioux Falls region, I'm hearing from Dave. I'm hearing from my counterpart over in Ortonville, Minnesota, that, yeah, we're going to have tons of dead fish. They're going to have tons of dead sloughs. 
You know, I haven't heard it. A lot of years when we go through winters like this, anglers are seeing it. You know, they're seeing dead fish on the camera. They're getting, you know, their fish are, their bait is dying. And we've had very little of those reports. So um, the difference for us is that we went into that fall with pretty high water. We've had high water. We broke our all-time records in the fall of 19, which is really unusual. So ever since 20, yeah, we might have lost a foot or two feet, which is kind of normal through evaporation, you know, over the last two summers because they've been dry late in the summer. But our water levels are still pretty high. So, I mean, any of our managed fisheries, you know, are still maintaining you know, I've always kind of said in our part of the world, if you got 15 feet of water, you're in pretty good shape. And a lot of our lakes still have 15 feet of water. So, yeah, we're going to have some winter kill. You know, anything that's, you know, less than 10 feet deep, certainly possible. I'm just not hearing a lot of reports from people that there's dead fish or, or stress fish out there. I'm sure there's going to be some, but I don't think it's going to significantly impact our, especially our, you know, primary, our managed waters. I just think we'll be okay. Although, you know, I said that I've been saying that for the last three or four weeks, but yet we've got maybe another month or so of winter. So, <laughs> so you know, it just keeps coming. You know, our, our snow doesn't go away. Everyone else has got 50, 60 degree days, and we just keep piling it on top. So ice fishing is really tough. There's a lot of snow on the ice. If you don't have a tracked vehicle, you're not ice fishing now. So it's really you know, significantly less people out there now. All the ice, you know, the hard checks are off. So time will tell. We don't have a whole lot of people out there to report those conditions, but we'll see. But from what I'm hearing so far, I don't anticipate a huge amount of winter kill problems for us. And the places that kill, you know, th those are our shallow waters, which, right. uh, you know, winter kill's not all bad. I, I always remind people of that. It's like, you know, some of these things, the best thing they can do, they get, you know, a blue, a bullhead population or a carp population. And then if we can kill it completely, we can have phenomenal fisheries for a few years. So, you know, and I, I don't think it's going to be, you know, astronomical in our area. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised how little we're hearing at that point. Sure. And, you know, being a Northeast South Dakota guy, you talk bad about bullheads and it just breaks my heart. <laughs> Dylan, let's talk about, I mean, you're obviously, we're not dealing uh, up in your neck, up in our neck of the woods, which is, you know, Owahi and Sharp. We're not worried about, you know, winter kill and stuff per se, but I, I've been in Pier 26 years. I don't even think you're that old. This is the best ice fishing Barely. I've ever seen. <laughs> this is the best ice fishing I've ever seen on, on Sharp and Owahi in 26 years. I mean, the access, the fish... The, the, the stretch of fish, I caught fish from Spring Creek to north of Whitlock's and from Pier to, you know, West Bend. So let's talk about those, those water levels and even the ice conditions. I mean, the ice went to crap on Oahe early because the levels were just crazy. Yep. So, Yeah, we're kind of a different scenario up on the river where... We actually hope for more snow right. versus in Mark's country. The more snow, the better, because that brings the lake or the river up for us. But yeah, this year with how cold it was and the prolonged winter, we actually had really good ice cover across the reservoirs. Where usually Lake Sharp, with the flowing stretch there, there's some sketchy spots where right. you normally won't get on. But they actually froze pretty decent this year. And same thing with Lake Oahe. It's such a big system that that main lake. Sometimes freezes, sometimes right. doesn't, but 
we got so cold this year we had good access people could Baja around all over on the lake and we really didn't have much snow in our area so once you got on the ice it was easy to get around and yeah I had my uh, Subaru Outback down on Joe Creek out on the ice a couple different times I'm not bragging but just... <laughs> it must have been good if you yeah yeah right <laughs> it was it was unbelievable and and I think it sets itself up for a, a good spring but I'm gonna come back to you Dylan about water levels and kind of flow Let's talk about out west. I think we started, you know, I mean, you're fairly new and you had to just go, oh my gosh, because you stepped into the middle of, you know, water flows and uh, we're waking up to nightmare situations and stuff. How's everything looking out west? Uh, ice cover on some of those big reservoirs and stuff is still pretty good? Yeah, I mean, uh Ice, ice cover, especially on uh, Belfouche, uh, Angostura are, are two big reservoirs. And Shade Hill, that's a usually a little different story, a little further north. Um, but, um, you know, Angostura, more ice than, than we've typically seen. It's right. been a colder winter. Ice came earlier, and it looks like it's going to go off later. Um, so... Uh, Angostura is one of those. I, I just I never really hear a lot of of reports of of anglers down there catching uh, fish, and and this year wasn't too different. Um, it, you're always going to have those guys that target the the crappie off the tires at the right. marina, and and those folks, and and there was people catching some fish, but uh, you know not too many reports there. There there seemed to be a decent bite on on Belfouche for a while, but um, ice conditions there when the the reservoirs filling back up, the edges get dicey, and yeah. uh, so things there can can be pretty hit and miss as well. What about so I, I did hear uh, I saw one of my really good friends reported something from Angostura, and, and he caught some walleyes I think Friday or Saturday, and man the comments were like shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. <laughs> so I think there must be some good secret like those guys go out and fish them. There's a small group and 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 they keep good secrets. But what about, like, what do you hear from, you know, I think we think of the Black Hills and we're thinking trout and stuff, and, and I love to go out and fish panfish and walleyes in the hills, but, like, the, the Lakers on Deerfield, Lakers on uh, Pactola, are those kind of, like, coming full circle, or is there still a bunch of pressure and people targeting those pretty hard yet? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think that you, there's a lot of people that go out and target uh, the lake trout, especially on Pactola. Our, our Deerfield population has uh, basically gone into pretty severe decline. Right. Um, those those were old fish that, that we got in an opportunistic way. And uh, so not seeing too many of those fish uh, showing up anymore, but certainly on Pactola, you know, there's still really good population um and some some really big fish have come out uh, of the ice this year and uh you know uh the, i i always kind of attribute the, the lake trout fishermen kind of like musky fishermen they're a, a lot of uh you know self-regulating yeah, uh, catch, catch and release folks right. and, and so a lot of those lakers seem to to go back down the hole and and on for the next guy but yeah i i think uh if you reported that you took one of those things out of out of one of those lakes, you better move. <laughs> Keep the people be coming for you. <laughs> right. 
So, Jeremy, do you see um, natural reproduction? Are these are these systems that are supporting themselves, like Pactola? I mean, do you see New it, Year classes of, of trout coming in? Yeah. The so the the lake trout. I mean, when when we survey, um, you know, we see a lot of different year classes um, on those lake trout. Uh, so they're definitely naturally reproducing uh, for. Um, a while in the in the early go when they were still stocking, uh, we haven't stocked it for a number of years uh, with lake trout. So pretty much what's what's left in the reservoir is is pretty much all uh, naturally re reproduced. We we had clips on the the hatchery fish, and I haven't seen a, a clip in quite a few years now. So and that, those are because they're deeper water fish and cold water fish. They're pretty slow growing too, right? I mean, right. Yeah. Yep, those those fish, you know, they're they're pretty slow growing. Uh, those uh, bigger bigger size class fish can can reach uh, you know pretty pretty good ages in there. Yeah. So, yeah, I I know that like a couple of the only Lakers I ever caught were way up north, and they weren't giants, but it was you know maybe a 15, 18 pounder, and I'm fishing with guys that have done it their whole lives, and they're like, that's a thirty year old fish. It's I'm sorry, go back, you know, <laughs> apologizing to the fish to catch it. Um, let's talk about a little bit of, we've had a, a big winter, and I'm going to, Jeremy, I'm going to put you back on the spot because as I was writing questions, and normally I, I got dirty looks from all four of these guys because normally I give give a heads up on what kind of questions I, I ask, and Sorensen said, geez, I didn't even get a list this year, so... But Jeremy, I'm going to stick with you. I've been out spawning walleyes. I've, I've gone and trapped and transferred fish, and I've done all these things. And we started thinking, I started thinking about, obviously we have two hatcheries out west. Where do trout eggs come from? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's And good. how many, and let's talk about all that. They come from trout. Right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so um, mo our, our two uh, cold water hatcheries, uh, Claghorn Springs and Rapid City and McNinney uh, in Spearfish, I actually worked at McNinney for a couple years when I first started out. Um, and so a lot of those eggs are, are coming from uh, federal hatcheries out west, uh, get shipped to us in a, a box with ice and, and into the jar they go and, and hatch and then we we start the grow out process so so are those brood stock fish like they have just big giant fish swimming around that they are they're in complete control of all the time and they just breed them with younger or different males and to keep the keep the genetics yeah absolutely i mean uh you know historically uh you know we did have some brood stock mm -hmm. trout uh held at claghorn springs uh you know, many years ago, we, we haven't had any broodstock fish for, oh, I don't know, probably 20 years. Um, I was there. Ermer's <laughs> like, was I there? I was there. D.C. Booth used to Yeah, I remember some of those D.C. Booth fish that we released. But, uh, but yeah, I, I mean, like walleye spawning, you know, we spawn all those fish ourselves. Uh, we don't spawn any, uh, any of our own trout. Uh, those fish are, are all coming from brood stock out in those uh those fed hatcheries so yeah they are they're keeping you know large females large males uh you know spawning those fish on site right um they're you know rearing those eggs in the early uh period until there's what's called eyed eggs sure um so typically we're getting shipped to what's called eyed eggs um and 
generally speaking, you see, you know, less mortality on those eyed eggs than you would, you know, like a green egg. So, and and what on a like, let's say this year is just we'll just say it's a typical year, but even though we know it's not, what's your egg request? How, how many, you know, fry are we trying to get? How many fingerlings? I mean, you know, let's talk numbers on that. Yeah, I mean, so it's it's interesting because you know in the in the walleye game, you know, it's it's egg numbers. You know, we're we're saying, hey, we need you know this many eggs to to meet these requests. Um, in the the trout side of things, I'm I'm making a request for adult fish, generally speaking. Sure. Um, and so let I'll just use Pactola for instance. Pactola, Deerfield, Sheridan are our big three reservoirs in the Black Hills. They're getting ten to twenty thousand uh, adult rainbow trout. Um, what uh, what the hatcheries requests to actually meet that goal? I'm I'm not honestly sure. But what I do know is when the when the feds ship eggs, um, they generally ship way more than we need. Um, and so typically we we get those eggs in, they hatch out, and then you know we we basically crop off the top until we have exactly what we need, and that's what we grow out. Sure. Um, Cool. And you saw all three of these guys like, like bristle up and you were like, we're talking adult fish. And these guys were like, oh my God, you know, a billion eggs requesting. And so that's where we're going, boys. You three start thinking about it. And I know you, Jeremy, you'll probably get called to come and help, but spawning season, I mean, you guys are all lifting weights, getting ready for spawning <laughs> season. Yeah, what do we have? BJ go down today with a shoulder. We got somebody else. Not, all my guys have been around for 20 years, and we were all just complaining about how we can't do this and can't do that. So it's not I, looking good. I, I blew a shoulder, too, and, and actually have to go to Sioux Falls next week to probably get it looked at. So I'll come and film, but I'm not, I'm not shoveling out any nets. So, boys, let's talk about – so. The spawning for walleyes is a big deal, and you guys are all cranked up for it, and, and whether you're looking forward to it or not. Um, going in, you know, let's just talk about the process. Mark, I mean, you've been at it for a long time, and, and Jason, you've been at it for a long time. Just start laying out from the beginning on the process of why we have walleyes in as many lakes and rivers and streams and stuff as we do. So first I'll say I always look forward to it. It sucks every year, but there's also <laughs> right. beautiful days right, every year right. too. Now when I go out, every time I go out, the wind howls. Right. I'm an office jockey, and the only time I know I get to go out for three weeks in a row is during Wally Spawning. So I like it. I mean, that's why I got into this field. So, um, you know, as far as how we go about doing this, and, and – Every year our request is kind of the same. You know, in that ballpark of 100 million eggs is usually what it takes us to meet all of the requests across the statewide this year. So that's, it's similar. I don't even know what the number is. I think it's 120 million or something. So we're, uh, you know, we have that number in mind and then everyone's sort of going back to their, you know, getting their plan together. What lakes are you going to work? So we're, we're, we're digging through the data that we collected last year, the year before, and even, you know, a lot of, in a lot of ways, especially for these big fish, that's what we're looking for. Big walleyes. Um, 
our gill nets might not might or might not show those you know our biggest mesh in our our standard sampling gear is like two inches so you're not going to catch a lot of the seven eight pound fish that we're interested in so we do base um some of our you know which is our brood lakes on angler reports you know i mean talking to people hey i caught a lot of big fish there you know we can go off of as simple information as that sort of seeing in our data too there's some indication that there's a lot of fish over 20 inches and they've been there a long time so likely there's some bigger fish and so we'll just do that every year and we'll we have of course 80 walleye 80 plus walleye waters in the northeast we have to choose from so that's nice um and we'll we'll pick the ones that we feel like at this time and place is the best place for us to go so i mean uh, partly we we've used lynn and middle lynn for a lot of years partly because we have a muskie population there and one of the strategies for sampling muskies is to put big five foot hoop huge nets they're called we call them musky nets but to get those in the lake right after ice out and that's when we catch muskies well we also pretty do a pretty good job of catching walleyes in those nets too so we're already there we use the lake so we'll probably use lynn and middle lynn again as we always have they've been pretty good lakes to us for a long time and then uh really maybe one or two more lakes i've got on our my list you know we might most likely we'll go to Pius, which we've used in the last two years, and it's been very good. Um, we work with the tribe up there, and they're, they're, they get their own eggs through that effort as well, so it's a good partnership. So, so we'll probably go there, but we also have two or three other lakes that are in the, as an option. You know, sure. we got Lardy Lake as a good possibility. We got uh, a new one called Altoff. That's a good possibility. So we we always have plenty. That's always the hardest decision for us, like where to go, because you can only be in two or three or four lakes at a time. You just have. I mean, it just takes a lot of time. So that's uh, that's our plan for this year. And I'm sure, you know, unfortunately, it looks like it's going to be a late spring for us. You know, we're, anytime we approach May, crazy things happen. You know, right. when the walleye, when the the temperature the the daylight's there middle of april walleyes are ready to spawn so now they're just waiting for that temp and and when the, all the moons align they will spawn but unfortunately when you get don't get that temp until late april early may then it goes very fast so whatever nets you have in the water you get those fish so you've got to have a lot of nets in the water so you can only be so many places at once and it just our, our spawning window is like a four or five day period and that's looking like what we're going to do again and we'll we'll have that in mind and we'll have a lot of nets in the water we'll have crazy busy you know five or six days but uh and we'll get we'll get eggs but uh, i wish it was like middle of april whenever we have like normal it's always better normal and this is not going to be a normal year unfortunately so yeah we'll, and we'll come back to that full disclosure i have a really good trail back in the Pius from back in the day when that was just a slough and we'd go spear pike. And literally when it was not legal, we would fill a pickup load full of pike and have so much fun. I've spent so much time back there. <laughs> yeah. I think I think the uh, statue of limitations off. Yeah. So bad, I'm not sure. I'll have somebody so, visit with you about that, yeah. see if it is. <laughs> Sorry, I'm sure. Marty Jackley's a friend of mine. He might be calling me after this. But. No, that, and that's interesting stuff. Now, uh, River Boys, let's talk about I mean, there. How, how many years have you been doing this, Jason? That, I mean, you got to be looking at ice cover, going, oh man. <laughs> yeah, I've been at it probably twenty six years now. Right, we started about the same time. Yeah. I, the ice cover has got to be 
have you scratching your head a little bit too. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's been a real odd year. This is the best ice conditions I've seen on on the reservoirs for since I've been around out here. Um, but also that ice can disappear as fast as it showed yeah. up too. So when you get that flowing water under there with now that we have some longer days and some some uh, warmer days, it it can surely disappear as fast as it came on. So. And and. Dylan, let's talk about like where historically and why, and Jason, you can step in too here, on Lake Oahe, I mean, you guys have plans and, and crews and it's all hands on deck there too. Yeah, absolutely. And if listeners aren't uh, familiar with Lake Oahe, there's three main tributaries on the west side of Oahe, the Cheyenne River, Moreau River, and the Grand River. Those have historically been our three big spawning locations for walleyes on Lake Oahe. Kind of makes sense, right? You get the first inflows into the reservoir, you get that warm water coming in, the walleyes push up into the backs of those tributaries and really concentrates the fish and that's where we can target them. Um, the last couple years we've really focused in on the Grand River. That just like Mark talked about, that really concentrates our big fish and maximizes our potential out there. And the nice thing is we, consistently where the northeast might have to move around from lake to lake we can consistently go in the same area the fish are always there the generally big fish and we have good egg quality out of those and you, you get more and more fish moving up out of the main lake into those tributaries as as time goes on so you're not fishing the same fish you're, exactly. you're getting right. different, different fish. fish moving in there all the well, time talk about it and explain because i got into a giant argument at pheasant festival places in in minnesota uh, in Minneapolis, what are uh, walleye comes in? What are they looking at? What what keeps them to finally tip them over and go? All right, let's party. We're going to have babies. Is it temperature? Is it ice cover? Is it sunlight? Is it wind? What are they looking for for the bottom? You know, substrate. What are they looking for on the bottom? Go ahead. All you guys can chime in and argue and all fight. the above. Yeah, all the above. It's, <laughs> yes. a, it's a combination of all of them. So. Uh, on Francis' case, we see the peak of our walleye spawn the same time of year every year. It's typically about the third week in April. Doesn't matter what the water temperature is, it, it's always at about that same time of year. Um, and so I think they're keying in on a photo period has a lot to do with it, but certainly water temperature has a lot to do with, you know, the hatching of the eggs and how many sure. days of, and you need to mature those photo eggs. Photo period is like length of day, right? Like yeah. daylight, yeah. right? Uh, yeah, this this gentleman, and I'll use that very loosely, was just like, there's no way those walleyes are going to spawn underneath the ice, and these are the reasons, you know, we should be drilling and pulling these fish out and taking them to hatcheries, and I went, uh, sir, I, I'm an English major, but I've spent a bunch of time with our fisheries guys and gals, and no, they, they'll hold off, but at the same time, it's all of the things. So what kind of bottom are they looking for? Obviously, northerns are, you know, you run into the creeks, right? And, and they're looking for, for current. And perch, you guys have told me and beat it into my head, you need, you know, you need, they, they have the strings, so they're looking for weeds and stuff. What's a walleye looking for, Ermer? Prime, like the money shot, yeah. the money spot of, 
a perfect walleye condition. <laughs> Every time we're on the lake, we're like, where is the best spot? Right. And, and we're looking for similar things. It doesn't always mean we know what the hell we're doing. And, and some nets are always better than the others. Wind plays a role. You know, typically we have wind on that shoreline. Those nets tend to fish better with wind. Um, but so like what fishing, we're look, really. yeah, what we're looking for generally for a good spawning place, like the perfect scenario would be a, a main lake point coming out accessible to deep water. But then as you come up towards shore, you get this nice, you know, gravel or sand bench that's sitting at about five or six feet of water because when the five or six feet of water isn't really as important for the fish as it is for us, we have nets that are about four foot deep. And ideally, you set that net where it's set nice and flat and your lead is covering almost all the whole water column so they can't go over you. And they, right. as soon as they hit that net when they're running the shoreline, they tend to hit a wall and they'll go to deep water to escape it. And it'll just walk them down that wall right to your trap. Right. If you have a whole bunch of depth over top of a net, like say 8, 10 feet of water, they're just going to simply follow that lead and go right over your trap. So, you know, that's where that four to five to six feet of water where you're trapping with your net all of the water. It doesn't really leave them a place to escape. And that's just, and, and you know, like that's the habitat they're looking for. Shallow, rocky, or sand. But rock, you know, it might be sand on the shoreline, what you typically see. But as you go out in a little deeper, you tend to see it get a more rubble, you know, gravel, that type of bed. And like I said, that's what we look for. But right doesn't always mean the fish like those the best and dylan water uh, temperatures water clarity does that matter like for us uh, building off what mark was talking about especially in the low water we're seeing right now the issue with the wahi is as the lake drops our shorelines get very steep right so we run into issues with that where exactly what mark said we set a net and it might be one foot when we start we get out to the back and it's 12 foot and yeah, yeah those fish right. go right over top of it but yeah, I mean, water clarity, I I don't think it is concerned too much. I mean, we've caught good numbers of fish in really, gin clear water, and then a number of, a few years back, we were had high water, and we were way back in the Grand River, and it was chocolate milk, and we right. were still catching fish up there, so. And uh, temperature-wise, boys, what? You know, I would have, I had this rule of thumb, of course, I've been doing it a lot of years and in our water, like when we hit like 50 degrees, usually the spawn's on, you know, it, it's the daylight period. So we got to get to at least the middle of April, which is normal. And then any point after that, if we're hitting 50 degrees and our water temperature, they're spawning, you know, it's happening. But last year was such a we weird year and I broke the golden rule. I said, you know, 45 degrees, we're going to get our nets in and we'll, we'll be in time for the spawn. But we spawned fish on Pius Lake almost every day last year at about 42, 43 degrees. Right. So it was so late in the photo period. We were almost into May. The fish were just, they, whether the temperature was there or not, they spawned. Right. And so, look, again, I would have said we would have never taken eggs before 45 last year. Well, it proved us wrong, and, and they spawned. It just got to be time where they were going to do it. So Sure. And, and talk about, Jeremy, talk about, like, you go out there, and this is a process. It's every person who thinks they know about fisheries and fishing should go out and spend a day with you guys out on the lake spawning fish, because there's just fish go flying around, and it's green, you know, right, green, male, you know, blah 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 blah. Talk about holding holding those fish that aren't ready. I mean, that happens. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it, it's like selling cattle. <laughs> it really is. 
Well, yeah, and that's, uh, you know, something that we've done over the years is, you know, you just don't want to throw back eggs. And so, uh, you know, you get those big green females and, you know, honestly, I've, I've had those, you know, 13, 14 pound females and, you know, they're, they're in your green, uh, bin. Tell and, them uh, what green, green. is, Jeremy. We oh, always yeah. talk about, we talk that. lingo that people don't understand. So yeah, we're, we're, uh, we're feeling these, these, uh, fish and, uh, you know, pressing on their bellies, trying to see if they're ready to give up those eggs. Right. And, uh, you know, if, if they're nice and, uh, ready to roll and they're, they're, uh, uh, you know, little squeeze and they, they give up some eggs, they're ready to roll. Um, other ones, you can, you can put the pressure on them and right. they don't give you anything. And so those fish, they go into a bin. Um, and I, I don't know what you guys do in the Northeast, Mark, but we, we give those fish, I think, three days. Yeah. Um, right. And if they haven't given up those eggs within three days, we, we kick them loose. And, you know, that that's a lot of eggs in that one female and right. uh, so it can be tough to, to see those fish you know go three days and then not ripen up and so yeah we're, we're definitely trying to to get as as many of those fish to, to ripen up and get those eggs i i saw Sorensen have to release a giant paddlefish one time with with eggs in her and i thought he was gonna cry i was like <laughs> seriously like we have to put him on suicide watch because it was a giant battlefish she's just not gonna go we gotta let her go so but that's i mean it really is uh, fascinating and it, it's a lot of fun and, and i can see you guys all kind of flexing your muscles getting ready to getting ready to do it mark you talked about it a little bit but um jason maybe you want to hit on when this goes how long typically you know how many folks how many fisheries biologists and and communications people and habitat people i mean it's all hands on deck what are we talking about as far as you know boats you know employee power everything like talk about what goes into a spawn yeah so it's pretty labor intensive when you think about it as a whole i can't speak for mark up in the northeast i've only spawned on the reservoirs but uh you know we'll have usually three boats with three crews of four people in each each boat and so we're talking a dozen people every day out there running those nets and sorting those fish and and then doing the actual spawning every day if, if there's fish to spawn and so you take that that usually lasts for at least two three weeks sometimes longer sometimes shorter it just right. depends on the year and the water temps and the and uh whatnot but uh so yeah, you're you're talking a pretty good effort in manpower as well as you know keeping all those boats up and running and fueled up. And when you get back to town at the end of the day, you don't just go to rest. You you got to get things ready for the next day. You got to get those eggs shipped out and send them off to the hatcheries. And I think it's important to clarify there too that that just when we quit doesn't mean that the spawn is done either. When we say we're out there for two or three weeks. We're out there until we hit our egg goal. That doesn't mean that the spawn stops as soon as we get the boats off the water. Right. I mean, that, depending on the year and the water temps and stuff like that, it can draw out for a long process. But Yeah, and I, w I would say that we're taking a, a raindrop in a snowstorm or a raindrop in a, in, a, you know, in a rainstorm, the amount of fish that are going. Uh, Dylan, that's a good point. When you're going, and Mark too, when you're going, how many nets are you running at one time? And, and this is work, you guys. I, I, the last time I did it, 
the wind was blowing and we shoveled nets all day and I literally walked off the boat. I took my cameras and went, I'm done, I'm going home. Tail between my legs, I went back to pier. But talk about like the number of nets and you know, you got three or four boats going. How many nets are you setting and and emptying in a sure. given day? Yeah, last year anyway, uh, I think the most nets we had in the water at a single time was 80, 90, <laughs> something like that. And we probably had 12, 15 people on the water. We probably had four or five work boats, but then in addition to that, we had two or three pontoons set up and tethered to shore. Spontoons. Spontoons, yeah. Yeah. that's what we actually worked the fish up on. But yeah, it's a it's a big process for us. And by the way, you pull up on a net and it's full of fish, uh, probably not walleyes. So you're scooping, you've got long, long handled nets that you're scooping carp and catfish and red horse suckers Pike. and every other weird fish that I've never seen and you're rocking and rolling on a flat bottom boat and you're pulling fish and you're trying to separate them this is work I mean this is work but it it is fun I mean you guys are all smiling sitting here and going yeah we got this going for you that's why you don't go to the Missouri River to do it if you're gonna do it call me because when we pull up to a net and pull it it's full of pike no, and perch and walleyes that's, that's, so. that's a lie because one time uh you and I were up there, and it was icy. We had to break ice, and it was full of giant smallmouth. Yeah. And everyone like had four or five walleyes that we had to kind of hand deliver, and then scoop yeah. out all the. We do. We get other fish too, but we do have a little cleaner look in our lakes typically. So we have a lot of target species. So that is nice. And and we operate like Jason said with about the 12 people we're a little tougher and a little stronger and a little you know so we run four boats with those 12 people every day but uh when we actually and i don't know if people know this or if the options out there but we take a lot of volunteers with us every year people that are just interested like you said you should go see it because it is cool you know any angler that's been in this you know country for a long time we treat them like cattle and we're throwing eight and ten pound fish around like there's nothing because it's just that's what we do for like two weeks but anybody that goes along with us and like every single fish to them is like oh Jaw my dropping. gosh if right. i could catch this on my rod so it's really cool for those folks to see it and then pull up to the net and you lift it up and there's 60 you know eight to ten pound fish in the net. It's like wow i've never seen anything like this right. before so yeah, it you, is cool you can definitely tell when you got a new person on your boat because you pull up to the first net and then you gotta stop and take about 35 pictures yeah. Yeah. and then you can move on to the next yeah, one and it slowly me. tapers off over it's the me. course of the so those volunteers are the ones that run the show so. Yes, I, I'm telling you that that last day that I went out with you, Missouri crew, I was nope, done, not doing this anymore. It was more fun 20 years ago. I guess. Yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> it's easier to get up the next morning 20 years ago. So we're gonna wrap up um, here. I got one last big question, and it's kind of the gorilla in the room. Let's talk about the long winter and winter kill. Uh, Mark, you, you brought up, you brought it up early, but we're facing, you know, up in, up in God's country, you know, in the Northeast South Dakota, this is a, maybe not a normal winter, but it certainly isn't a giantly abnormal winter. Um, but down in the Southeast and even in the, in the central portion and certainly in the, in the Western, you know, like the, maybe not the the rivers and the creeks and the streams, but some of your little ponds and stuff, we're in a drought. 
long ice conditions, bunch of snow on top. And we're winter killing. We brought up spawning and stuff. What, I, I would assume you, you guys are already planning on, you know, extra eggs, extra other things, and we can bring those up, but, you know, extra walleye eggs and stuff j just to mitigate some of these ponds but let's and lakes. Let's talk about winter kill and the effects of winter kill and, and what, what that does and how quickly something may or may not rebound water water body jeremy you want to go well i mean in our world i don't anticipate a whole lot but yeah those are the periods of times where it's kind of an opportunity really i mean some places you hate to see all those fish die but the bottom line is winter kills a part of our world you know and from a fishery standpoint it can lead to some really good things you know you get a restart and that's what these you know in my world prairie pothole lakes are meant to do right you know they, they start over and then you get phenomenal growth anything you put into something that has a complete winter kill has no competition it just got a whole bunch of water in because you're you 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 know this right. year's going to be that way we're going to hold it's going to go winter kill and then it's going to raise three or four feet right. it's going to flood a whole bunch of great spawning habitat it's phenomenal from a fishery standpoint it will take three or four years right. to get those fish to a harvestable size but it's not all bad i don't want to send the message that winter kill is terrible in our right. world so but completely different perspective yeah start over in in Irmer's, Irmer's backyard, he could, you know, throw a rock and skip it across six different lakes. Yeah. You have communities that rely on, you know, whether it's maybe not Shade Hill isn't a great example, but, you know, one outside of Faith or, you know, Hayes. Hayes Dam. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's <laughs> well, I went by it this fall right. and it didn't look good. Yeah, I, I, I caught some fish there just a couple weeks ago, so we might squeeze it. But talk about that's a completely different perspective right i mean yeah i mean uh that's that's just it you know in in western south dakota i i say we're water poor you know right. we we don't have the the number of lakes and the size of lakes that that mark's got up in the northeast and um you know certainly for some of these small communities you know uh, the lake that's nearest to them is this kind of precious uh, resource for them um and so but i will echo what mark said you know some of these lakes uh you know they're they're filled with a lot of undesirable species and and it can be a blessing in disguise to to kill that lake and you know if if it's overrun with carp and bullhead and uh you know other bullhead uh, <laughs> yeah i that's that's just one of those that it's pretty tough to to get on top of you know from right. a predator standpoint or to to manage that fishery and so to to have that chance to to restart that that can be a great thing um you know these shallow lakes some sometimes that can be a really great fishery and and when one tips over on a winter kill that's it's unfortunate but yeah we have plans in place that, that we're ready to go and get it restocked and you know a lot of that is probably we're going to trap and transfer uh, some some bass in there from from another lake that's got a, a high abundance uh maybe we try to get some bluegills in there or you know even a, a walleye stocking and right. you know I, i've already got you know i'm sure um dave lucchese in the southeast same thing we've we've got placeholders in the stocking schedule that are set to if this lake that that we suspect might winter kill if it does we're going to have some fish there so right and um you know jason and, and dylan 
we went into probably this last summer and and I tromp around the grasslands all the time and those lakes were dead. Those ponds and impoundments were I I just went there's no chance that these ponds are making it. And we got to about July 1 and we got three or four absolute gully washer rains. And those things those ponds and and little dams responded so unbelievably that those fish that even on these small ponds it's like there's nothing left in there but that fresh water man all of a sudden there's like there's fish everywhere so but talk about talk about the trap and transfer stuff i think that's something that people don't even know we do yeah at least in the pier area and it's similar with chamberlain like once you get off the missouri river a lot of our small dams and fisheries are primarily bass, bluegill, other panfish. So it's different when you kind of hit the reset button after a winter kill or something. Those bass and bluegill populations don't take as long to grow and get to adult size and whatnot. So we often have some ponds where actually we have too many bass and bluegill. So we, maybe we can go into one of those ponds, take some of those fish out. The fish that are left are actually going to grow better but then we can t move those fish into the ponds that killed and kind of rejuvenate that system that way. And that, I mean, Irma, even up in your country, you're, you guys are moving fish into whether it's a, let's say it's a, a urban fishery yeah. or, you know, these ponds that, I mean, you guys are doing that stuff all the time. Yeah, that's been a big focus, I'd say, the last five or six years especially. Our community and urban fisheries, you're trying to bring the fish to the people right. where they live. You know, in the cities of Watertown, the cities of Aberdeen, we want people to be able to ride their bike, the kids to ride their bike down to a local pond that's only an acre or two and catch fish. So we're doing a lot of that. So we, we move northern pike every year. We move a little bit of some bass. We move uh, white bass is one of a big one. People are don't really want them in some lakes, but they're a great fish to catch. And right. people love to catch them in an urban pond. So bluegills we do from Big Stone Power Plant. So yeah, we, we do a fair amount of, per, of those trap and transfers really targeted, especially at those community fisheries. But like um, in a winter kill situation, that's how we start most of our perch sure. fish populations. Most of those is like one truckload, which isn't very many. It could be a thousand acre lake, and we stock a thousand truck, you know, ready to spawn perch in a pond, and that's all that it takes to get those ponds start, those lakes started. So we do that when we do have winter kill. I think that's probably, you know, something that when I started, you know, this, the trap and transfer stuff like happened if, you know, only in like kind of an emergency thing, but we see it, it's essentially what you're doing out west all the time, Jeremy. I mean, you're raising fish, we're putting them in a lake, go catch them, go have a bunch of fun, and, and it's proven to be like, it works, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, especially in the, the trout world, I mean, putting put and take fisheries i mean that's that's what we're we're there for and you know if, if you walk into our our western cold water hatcheries raising the trout they have a big sign on the wall that says you know our our mission is to maximize angler satisfaction right. um and so you know that's what all of us are trying to do um but that's that's one of those things that you know it's very tangible to an angler it's it's right there right away right um and so, you know, typically for, for our put-and-take rainbow trout fisheries, we're looking for high catch rates, um, uh, a catchable size fish, you know, probably 11 inches or, or more. And, you know, in places like Pactola, you know, we're stocking, 
15, even 20 inch rainbows right. and, and amazing. people love it. Right. Um, and, and so that's, that's one of the, the most, uh, you know, popular things that, that we do out West for sure. And it, it is funny that if you've ever been out West and, and the people that are in the know, somehow they've got an in and that truck will back up and those I mean, those people are there waiting like it was Black Friday. <laughs> That's I mean, the fisheries version of the ambulance right, chaser, right? right? They're sharpening their elbows, and it's like Black Friday, man. I'm going to get that 52-inch TV, and, you know, we're, we're stocking fish. And it, it is funny, but at the same time, it's just like, ah, we got those people, right? This is why we do it, and it's, it's a big, big deal. Um, all right, Ermer, I'm putting you on the spot because – you just did a 50-minute presentation at our commission meeting about perch and perch limits. Yeah. And uh, you other guys, feel feel free to chime in. You know, for me, growing up in northeast South Dakota, perch, walleyes, northerns, moved to Pierre, fell in love with bluegills and crappies, and, and just because I want to be by myself when I fish. Why don't we spawn perch? Why don't we have a whole... A whole, you know, blue dog fishery in, up in northeast South Dakota that's only, the only thing we're doing is perch. Because millions of people come from millions of miles to fish perch in South Dakota. Yeah, and, and so the reason why we don't is because everything eats perch. <laughs> <laughs> so they're a little lower on the, to I mean, number right. one in South Dakota is walleyes. Right. We spend a lot of time, a lot of money in our hatcheries to raise walleyes. They're the top of the food chain, which is advantageous to us. We can raise them, put them out there. Yeah, we got to get them through a period of the first year where they get to six inches, and beyond that, they're kind of golden. They'll, they'll, they'll raise to the top, and they'll eat everything else. Well, when you're trying to do a stocking strategy like that, and you're working on the bottom of the food chain, well, not only do you have to stock adequate numbers to get to a 15-inch fish three years down the road, well, now you got to stock that fish in the face of predation for three years straight. I mean, a perch is even when it uh, maybe at eight inches at three years, it's escaped most of the predation. But really, the whole life of a perch is a food source for everything that lives in the lake. And we have lots and lots of fish in our lake. So that's where it's a little bit unrealistic for us to think that we can stock. I mean, there, there's this theory about as you stock fish. When you're at the top of the food chain, top of a pyramid, you can stock this many to get this result. Well, if you go down to the bottom of the food chain, which on a triangle is this big area, and you're stocking prey at that point, you need to increase your stocking by like tenfold every trophic level right. you go down. So that it very quickly becomes, I mean, we do 100 million walleye eggs a year. We'd have to do, you know... Uh, what's a, a hundred million times that you know or is a, a hundred times that is major, a lot don't ask me <laughs> too that. many <laughs> so that's the biggest challenge and and the other part of that equation is perch tend to do very well in our systems given the right conditions like we can't compete with mother nature we, we've learned that you know uh, we've tried to stock perch in a lot of southeast lakes we've done a lot of stockings over the last since 2008 we started stocking perch mm -hmm. and we evaluated those stockings and what we found is that we were very inefficient at producing good perch fishing lakes and we'd try hard and we'd get some fish to show up and then the next year would have the right water conditions raising and stuff and then this natural year class would just blow away sure. what we produce 
from our stocking. Right. So, and, and the other big challenge, and, and why we don't sort of, that's the stocking side of perch, but you know, why we did this petition is, you know, a lot of interest in perch. They are number two fish in the state, so they're really important. Especially come in the winter. In the winter, one. they're number one, no doubt about it. And there's a lot of people that are concerned seeing, you know, you watch social media, you see guided trips, and you see the, the quality and the number of a perch coming out of our systems. And it, it is a little bit alarming. It's just like, man, we need to save some of these fish for later, you know, next year, the year after. And the problem with perch is they are very short-lived, especially in our lakes that we consider these high quality lakes. And these tend to be our very simple, newly flooded lakes. They've only been on the landscape since the 90s. Right. This is where, that's the lakes that produce these jumbo perch that everyone wants to protect for the future. Unfortunately, year after year after year of data, we age these fish and we get very accurate ages on them from the otolith inside their head. And it tells us that these fish get up to that eight to 10 inch size, which the anglers want at about three to four years of age. And then by five, those same fish are dead. Right. I mean, they are perfectly healthy. It's hard to understand. And that's why people, I, I know people don't understand it, but how could a fish that's fat, 12 inches, beautiful looking, how could it possibly die next year? But it absolutely happens in our lakes. They die, they have this life history where they're super fast growing, very productive systems but they're very short-lived. That's just the life cycle. And so in that environment on these lakes, it just doesn't make a lot of sense for us to tell anglers, put that 10 or 12 inch fish back because we're gonna hope that you catch it next year and there's very unlikely that that fish would get caught again. So that's why it just doesn't, restrictive regulations work great for walleyes. You know, a fish that lives 10, 12, 15 years old, but perch when they only live four years and it takes them three years to get to that size, there's like a one year window for you to harvest right. it. You just go harvest it, be happy. Right. And then hopefully the environmental conditions will be right. We'll have another bonanza and those boom and bust fisheries will keep reemerging. But that's, that's, that's our, stress, our strategy. You know, we're like trying the, to work with mother nature instead of against her. Right. It's like the fast times at Ridgemont High, live fast and die hard, bro, yeah. right? <laughs> that's right. Um, how does that apply, uh, you Missouri River guys and, and even Jeremy at West River, I mean, we we hear about you know Hawaii and well you know Sakakawea and and Peck and they've got all these all the smelt and and obviously we got the smelt from North Dakota at some point and now you're even talking about a fish that only grows to you know six eight inches and people are just saying oh we we should we should be stocking these bait fish how many you know how right I mean how do you do it it's just not possible right. Yeah, just just to make a they point. They both on, gave me a dirty look on that <laughs> question, by the way. A, a couple of years ago, one of our past uh, administrators, I think he made an example to try to illustrate that because we got a lot of pressure. We should be stocking smelt, and it was something in the hundred train cars full of smelt is what we were right. going to need to stock in order to make a difference. And we get the question on Oahe versus Skakawea quite a bit, and why we don't have the smelt, but. They're really two different systems. You look at Sakakawea and the outflow, the dam where they pull water out of Sakakawea, that's kind of a surface draw. So the smelt and your cold water prey, they're at a lower water level right. or lower in the water uh, column. So when they pull water through Garrison Dam, they don't lose their smell. When we have high water events through Oahe Dam, like 2011, 2019, other years were not quite as drastic, we lose our smelt and our Cisco pretty quick and it's 
It's just a Because those intakes are pulling yeah, they're water pulling, from Yeah, but the Wahi Dam's pulling from deeper water depth, right. so we're, we lose those fish through the system. So we're fighting a losing battle trying to stock those. So one, one alternative we're moving towards on Wahi is actually stocking gizzard shad. So we are t looking at stocking prey fish. Shad are a, kind of more of a shallow water fish. They won't get sucked through the dam. They're more prolific spawners. They'll provide more food throughout the year. So it's not that stocking prey is a bad thing on the Missouri River. It's just you got to stock the right kind of prey. Right. And, and Jason, I know you know more about gizzard shad than probably anybody <laughs> because that's that's your lifeblood down here, right? Yep, down here on Francis Case and even down on Lewis and Clark. That, that's our primary forage fish, as it is in Lake Sharp, too. Um, and shad down in these reservoirs on the lower end, you know, we get a shad hatch every year. The question is, is how big of a hatch is right. it going to be? And so we'll see consistent reproduction, and it could be, you know, millions and millions of fish or just a handful of fish. And the effect on our game fish is, is pretty negligible. Um, you know, they might be a little on the skinny side if we have a, a poor shad hatch. Um, but we don't see that very often. That's a pretty rare event. So most of the time, it's pretty much a feast out there for, for these fish. The problem with shad is that we're far enough north that the water gets cold and those shad don't tolerate those cold temperatures. And we lose a lot of those age zero shad every winter. And so, um, you know, it, there's a lot of shad out there every year and they got to get them while they're there because right. they're not going to last. And, uh, and so when we lose those shad in the in the winter under the ice, that's why we start every spring around here on Francis Case anyway with a, a really hot walleye bite as soon as the ice goes out because those fish are hungry, the shad have died off, there's not a lot to eat out there. But the shad thing is, and I saw Jeremy getting a little nervous because, I mean, that shad thing, that I mean, you have fisheries that are driven by those and that, in theory, ultimately make it into make it into Oahe and make it down to Jason too. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, I mean, Angostura, I think that was one of the, the first shad uh, reservoirs in the, in the uh, state. And, you know, like Jason said, you know, we're on the northern edge. And, uh, you know, honestly, that that's a benefit to us in a lot of ways. In, in Nebraska, Kansas, states further south, gizzard shad can become a, a problem really fast. Um, that doesn't typically happen in our waters and uh, almost all of our western South Dakota reservoirs, that is the prey base. Uh, and, sure. you know, uh, like Jason said, you know, early in spring, you know, those fish, uh, a lot of those shad have died off. You know, we get a lot of hungry walleyes and the fishing is good in the spring. Um, you know, one of our lakes, Curlew, uh, it's, it's tough fishing. Uh, in the summer that there's so many shad in the right. reservoir and uh, you know it's it can be tough to, to fish in that environment but come spring those fish are gone and uh, yeah fishing can be good but that means that we kind of have to go and replenish and so that's another fish that in the spring we we typically do a lot of trap and transfer of, of gizzard shad to do uh, prey base management sure yeah, testament to the shad in the western reservoirs. If you look back well before my time, but in the early 2000s, when you're looking at Lake Oahe, we were coming off the major floods in the late 90s. The smelt collapsed, but then we were followed by high water. 
Lake Hawaii gained a ton of shad oh. from the Western Reservoirs. They got flushed down the Cheyenne River, the Grand River, yeah. and we had some of the best growth we've ever seen on Lake Hawaii yep. in the early 2000s. That was all based on a shad forage base. And it's it's interesting, and Jason, I know you know this because I started this winter, and the ice, like I said, the ice fishing on on Sharp and Hawaii was amazing. And I went to a couple of my spots on Sharp early ice, unbelievable fishing. I mean, lights out, oh my God, don't tell anybody, you know, button this down, 60, seriously, 60, 70 fish a night per person for a long time. But we we're marking like shad, right? And then all of a sudden you go there the next day and they're gone. And you're like, okay, I gotta go up because they're making their way towards the dam to spawn or whatever and it was just we're chasing them chasing them chasing them and finally went yeah it's too far i don't want to chase them anymore i got to come and find them somewhere else it's it really is a, a i mean it's such a prey based driven thing and they move because they're getting ready to go up and spawn right yeah walleyes are a creature of habit they're where their food is right and when their food moves they move yeah it was it was one of the first times i think i ever tried to mark fish and I wasn't looking for fish I was just looking for bait you know and, and so that was like a different thing so but boys I'm gonna let you go it's been an hour you haven't gotten to eat uh, I appreciate it I, I think this was good I think uh, it's very rare when I'm the dumbest guy at the table but all four <laughs> of you guys are way smarter than me I, I might be as handsome as a couple of you but I appreciate it but uh, hope you like it, guys. I appreciate it. Uh, if you want the wind to blow and you want a day off when you're walleye spawning, both Jason and Ermer can testify. You call me and we'll have a day off because the wind blows 80 miles an hour when I show up. But I appreciate the time and I uh, appreciate the knowledge, guys. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Anytime, thank you. Well, I hope you liked that. That one was a fun one to do. Uh, those guys are super smart, and um, they uh, they do a lot of work uh, out in the field, and they do a lot of, I call it egghead work, analyzing the work that they've done in the fields. But um, really cool stuff, and I and, uh, hope to get a chance to get out and do some work with those crews this spring and summer. It's going to be interesting to me how that walleye spawn goes because... I honestly think we're going to still be ice fishing in Northeast South Dakota on May 1st, but that's just me. But um, got some stuff going on. As I said, um, it's opening day of baseball, so late March. Um, April 1 is the opening of the Nest Predator Bounty Program for everyone. We've let uh, the kids have at it for a couple weeks early, but now everyone can join in. Uh, on the Nest Predator Bounty Program, so that's open on the 1st. Um, and Saturday, April 1st, is also the first day to reserve camping for the July 4th weekend. Um, that would be uh, Saturday, April 1st, is the first day you can reserve camping for June 30th, that Friday arrival. And if you're new to camping, uh, I recommend you do at least that. So, that's good stuff. Also, um, 
if you're a snow goose, light goose hunting aficionado, you've had it probably pretty good in the southeast quarter of the state. I've been back and forth to Sioux Falls the last, you know, quite a bit the last two weeks, and there's a lot of geese between, oh, I don't know, even Chamberlain. They're using the river quite a bit, but Chamberlain West. Uh, or Chamberlain East, sorry, and then South, um, you know, you always get the obligatory, they're showing up on the weather radar and that's happening. But uh, if you get very far north of, say, Sioux Falls, uh, it's there's a lot of snow there. And typically those geese will hang up on that snow line and kind of keep going back and forth. And if you've been in the far northern part of this state, you know there's a lot of snow. So it'll be interesting to see how long... Those geese will hang up and just kind of hang around this, this you know, northern or the southern quarter of the state or southern, you know, southeast quarter of the state. Uh, because if you think places like Watertown and Siston have snow, uh, you haven't been to Fargo and Grand Forks. There's a ton of snow up there uh, and it's winter. So it'll be interesting to see what those snow geese do and, and um, take advantage of that opportunity. Go out and at least watch that migration. It's pretty cool stuff. Um, another thing that kind of bouncing around and, and getting calls about and people talking and asking about is um, turkey season, spring turkey season. And while a lot of us look outside and go, oh my gosh, I can't believe you know anybody would want to hunt a turkey right now. Um, just a good reminder that those a lot of the spring turkey seasons got pushed back by the commission last year. Um, they did some turkey survivability studies and and really kind of trying to figure out how to improve some some um, survivability and, and and breeding actually of of turkeys and um, so they pushed a lot of these seasons back. So like used to be the archers spring archers got kind of a jump on um, you know a couple weeks on the prairie. To hunt turkeys but actually um, both the spring prairie archery and firearm season start on the 8th of April this year and run to May 31st um, that's for the spring on the prairie Black Hills has got probably the biggest change um, no turkey hunting in the hills until April 22nd that's archery or or um, you know firearms so that's that's probably a good reminder. I hope there's nobody trying to get out there in the next couple of weeks. But um, yeah, Custer State Park, Black Hills are uh, April 22nd uh, beginning dates. And yeah, and like I said, um, you know, mentored spring turkey, firearm or archery is April 8th, but you can't hunt in the Black Hills, even if you're a mentor until the 22nd. So just a little reminder to you uh, turkey hunters, uh, make sure that... Uh, when you're going hunting, that the season's open. It's kind of a different change, and, and uh, there was some cool data and stuff given at the commission meeting. I believe it was the October commission meeting, and uh, if you want to hear that that presentation, it is on our website uh, in audio form. I did, don't believe I put it up on video form, but on audio form, you can listen to it. Uh, Chad Lehman, he's a turkey turkey biologist out of the hills, out of the Black Hills, and... and uh, Liquid smart when it comes to that stuff. Dude loves turkeys and travels all over um, working on turkeys. So uh, I hope hope everybody's well. I know you're sick of winter, but uh, 
it's it's got to end. It just does. Um, Pierre and, and South Dakota had their first girls fast pitch softball games this year, and that's the first season ever. And I got to watch a softball game outside, so that means spring's got to be here, and it's opening day. So hope spring's eternal. Hope everybody's well. Get out, have some fun, be safe, and until next time, adios. Next afternoon, drove back to my car. Lose most of my breath, so dang far. To the key, clipping a horn with my head. Call a friend to jump more than my battery's dead.